In a world of complex and overwhelming challenges, the Inspirational Insights Podcast provides a shift in perspective. Dive into the minds of brilliant thinkers, creatives, and edge-riding leaders who have adapted their thinking and leadership practices to match today's perplexing challenges. Your host, Donna Jones, leads captivating conversations with trailblazers from diverse fields who have transcended tough and complex conditions to contribute to a healthier world. Can we collectively break old habits to reinvent the human work-earth relationship and support the vitality and diversity of all life? Harnessing agility, embracing possibilities. Welcome to the journey. My guest today is Lisa Gill, self-managing organizations coach, trainer, writer, and leader morphosis podcast host. Uh, Lisa was included in the Thinkers 50 Radar 2020 for her work with self-managed teams and is also the author of Mooseheads on the Table, Stories about Self-Managing Organizations from Sweden, which was published in 2020. She's the organizational self-management coach trainer with tough leadership training and the founder of Reimaginaire. And I love the quote that Thinkers 50 put forward on you, which is turning self-managed teams from a good idea into reality, uh, which is a big challenge. Lisa's leading the way and making it happen. Some of you who are listening to the podcast on a regular basis would have heard us talk about Lisa. So with Dunia and Hugo a couple of episodes ago, when we were talking about self-managing organizations globally and about their particular platform for putting people together. Lisa, how nice it is for us to finally talk after we've done some intersections and not managed to have this kind of conversation. What governance model means to me, how do we organize ourselves to get things done? It's fundamentally simple. We know that there's some authority or regulatory things to pay attention to, to comply with, but how we do that is is really up to us. I mean, when I wrote Decision Making for Dummies in 2014, we talked about it in terms of the traditional hierarchical structure, which gets you, you know, to pinpoint positions of authority and therefore a lot of bottlenecking and a very misconstrued understanding and use of power and authority and a lot of confusion all around where leadership is sourced. So to me, these new governance models are ways that we can intentionally organize ourselves so that we flatten the power structure and let people contribute uh, just to get the ego out of the way, to get a whole lot of things that they're in the way, <laughs> get them out of the way so we can have fun and get things done. <laughs> How do you yeah. see it? <laughs> yeah, I very much agree with your take as well. The discovery has been over the last new 10 years that all of our organizational structures and governance models are, they're inherited. So we step into them and we don't realize that there are rules of the game that we're adhering to. And we don't realize that baked into those are these kind of assumptions that are very often at odds with our purpose and our values. For me, I know I mentioned this to you before when we chatted, uh, a really good framework that I've been referring back to over and over again uh, comes from a woman called Mickey Kashtan, who's a nonviolence communication coach. And she says that if we really want to shift our organizations, if we want to move to something that's more decentralized, more human, more adapted, you know, all of those lovely buzzwords that everyone says these days, then there are three shifts that need to happen. And the first is in the five core systems that we have in organizations. Um, and for me, this makes governance models more concrete and more like, okay, what does that actually mean? Because those five core systems that she outlines are number one, 
how does information flow? Who has access to what information and how is it shared around the system? And in a traditional organization, we know that tends to be centralized and kept at the top and on a need to know basis. The second system is like resources flow and resources distribution. So how do we decide how money is spent? How do we decide who does what role, who has what responsibilities? The third one is decision-making, which you referenced as well. How are decisions made? Who is involved in those decisions? How are people informed about those decisions? And then the fourth is feedback flow. So how do we know what good looks like? How do we, uh, as a group of people, know that we're on track, measure or have a sense of what's going well and what's not? And then the fifth one, one that I'm particularly interested in, is conflict engagement. So how do we deal with conflict when it arises and who you know, helps with that? So those five systems, as Mickey says, if we don't uh, imagine those, or if we don't consciously, intentionally choose how those operate, then we're inheriting the kind of old paradigm system, the old paradigm version of those five things. So whatever kind of noble goals we might have to aspire to whatever, more agile, more human, if we're not consciously reimagining those five systems, then it's not going to work. It's going to die on the vine. And then the other two shifts are inner shifts. So the people with power need to undergo an inner shift and the people who historically haven't had power also need to undergo an inner shift because they've got to step in much more and the people with power have got to step back much more, but not too far. So those three shifts for me are such a useful way of thinking about a lot of the shifts we're starting to see in organizations and just what in particular we need to reimagine if we really want to organize ourselves differently. I particularly love the last two and the intentionality of the decision as well. You hit a certain trigger point where you realize you've got to step back and make a more intentional decision. And that's not happening in a lot of instances, especially with startups. They get to a stage of growth and then they morph right into what everybody else has been doing. Even though the talk and the language will be about doing things differently, it'll be, I'm going to be this exactly. kind of company, but that's the inner journey. If you haven't stepped into that place of saying, well, who am I in relationship to power and authority? Power is an interesting word in this conversation because we talk about it as power over others. But I think what we're talking about is power within. Where do we where do I sort our power? Do you want to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, and you remind me of a really nice quote that one of the guests I had on my podcast recently, Bernadette Wesley, said, which is that you can't have power with, in other words, sharing power um, without power within. Because I think there's a funny kind of shift as well uh, that needs to happen, which is that people end up in this trap, I think, of sometimes swinging too far, almost like a pendulum. Let's move away from top-down, you know, rigid hierarchical structures and if we swing too far in the opposite direction, then we can end up with this kind of leadership vacuum, you know, abdication, chaos, lack of accountability, all of those things happen. And so I think there is this inner journey that we need to go on, which is not shunning power completely because power is there <laughs> for one thing. You know, we can't get rid of that. Um, and also it's useful. Power and influence and leadership, these are useful energy sources that we need in an organization if we want to realize creative ideas if we want to solve complex problems but the trick is to be more conscious of it so i really like what you say about power within and i think that's also been a journey that i've gone on trying to reclaim some of the ideas i have about power being evil and hierarchy being bad and instead to have a more balanced view of when are these things useful 
And if we use them consciously and intentionally, how can we use them for good, you know? It's interesting. We've been talking about self-managed things and we need to get rid of the hierarchy. But hierarchy is quite natural in nature. In my conversations with Andrash Vishak and other parts of the organizational network analysis components are about that recognition, but it's how we use it. And if we use it to stack control over decisions, over other people, then of course we're misusing a natural system. We're distorting it to serve our own purposes. And I think it's very much reflected in the consciousness of an organization when you see a hierarchical, even our semi-hierarchical structure, um, and even a flat one, the intention, it's really about, do we have a secure group of people here who can walk into these roles and recognize that, that everyone has, brings something to the equation? Yeah, definitely. Interesting. I also want to learn from you about styles of leadership and source of leadership because of your work with Tough. And one of the beautiful things that, about doing that kind of role is listening to people and seeing how they think and feel and just the journeys that people are on. It's such a gift to do that. And it's such a range of conditions. When you think about styles of leadership, uh, what comes up for you? Oh, many things. Maybe I can say something about how I came to work with Tough because it's to this question, which is that when I first started learning about new ways of organizing, I was really looking at structures and processes I had this thought that if we remove hierarchy and layers of management, then everything will magically be wonderful and we'll have these beautiful ecosystems of people in harmony. And of course, I learned the hard way that that's not the case. And when I met Karen Tenelius, who's the co-founder of Tough, she was talking about her experiences of coaching organizations to work with less or no hierarchy and she had been doing that since the 90s, which also blew my mind because I had only just started discovering this stuff. This is going back to 2016. But she was talking about that for her, the focus was on kind of mindset and way of being that if you don't address the paradigm, you know, as Otto Sharma says, the place from which we are operating, everything is colored by that lens. So any structures and processes you try to implement or install Again, they're not really going to work because you're installing them through that way of seeing the world. And, and I see a lot of people who don't like the word leadership in this context and the new ways of working movement. They're like, we don't need leadership. And I think that's a missed opportunity. I often say that these self-managing organizations are bossless, but leaderful. And the difference is that leadership is occurring everywhere. It becomes much more dynamic and it flows almost like water to where it needs to go. And in order to do that, that means we need to have a lot more consciousness and be aware of our pitfalls and, and gain a lot of self-insight. And usually that can be quite painful and uncomfortable and requires getting lots of feedback and input and support from other people. And then also we need to really upgrade communication levels. Karen often talks about above the surface and below the surface. So if you think of an iceberg, and most conversations in organizations are above the surface. We talk about projects and deadlines and budgets and, you know, how are we going to solve this and so on. But underneath is all of this stuff that's really affecting how effective we are or not. So things like our mindset, if we're all in a team meeting and we think this is impossible, 
then that's going to be in the way for us to find solutions. Or if I don't trust, you know, the manager over there, uh, or there's like a climate of cautiousness, all of these invisible, but very powerful forces underneath the surface are influencing whether or not we achieve what we want to achieve, whether or not we can step into our leadership, being able to talk much more about what's under the surface to name it is what allows us to then shift it or become more aware. We can put words to something and then get a shared picture of it and then decide, do we want to do something about this or not? I think leadership for me is much more about, I was thinking actually about Adrienne Marie Brown, who was saying when I interviewed her recently that for her, leadership is becoming a lot about listening. A really powerful leader nowadays is someone who really listens and knows the right questions to ask. And I think that's, I think that's really true. We're moving out of this phase of like the heroic, charismatic leader, but it's also not about shunning leadership or that everyone should be equal. I think it's natural and human, as you said, to have hierarchy. So to acknowledge and appreciate each other's strengths and qualities and authority and influence and to be conscious of that is quite a skill. Like, I don't think we've learned how to do that yet. Margaret Wheatley says we haven't really fully learned how to be in this age of relationships yet. <laughs> I completely agree with that because it means being much more mindful. Uh, I just finished reading Ellen Langer's uh, work on that beautiful contrast between mindful and mindlessness, mindlessness. And it just nicely frames up those unconscious activities that take place in organizations or in relationships or teams or whatever layer of interaction you want to choose that need to be much more mindful in order for us to really navigate the context we're in much more successfully. Talk about sources of leadership. We have alluded to the shift. What do you see on the path to the true source of leadership? Mm. When you say the word source, it makes me think of source work, um, which comes from Peter Koenig, but also my friend Tom Nixon has really been a big proponent of writing about it and putting it out into the world. And that's for me been quite a journey because a lot of, a lot of that work is about integrating different parts of yourself Maybe to start first by saying what I mean by source, for those who aren't familiar, in this kind of lens, you could call it a way of looking at groups of humans and creative initiatives. There's a, a role called source, which is a special role that someone can play. It's usually the person who takes the first risk in realizing or starting a creative initiative, whether that's an organization or a community. And that person is almost kind of channeling the vision. So they have a vision and they want help in realizing it and kind of call on and recruit people to help them realize that vision. They bring them into a creative field. And that makes a lot of people uncomfortable in the world of self-management and because it sounds uh, suspiciously like hierarchy. But the difference is that, again, it's acknowledging, in a way, Tom talks about creative authority, that in order to realize creative ideas, there is usually one person has a clear vision of what that looks like. They may not have this series of steps or instructions or rest. Good source is one that is like a humble visionary. That's a phrase that Tom uses. I like, which means that I'm able to choose when is the right moment for me to say, here is what my vision is. And when is the right moment to listen to others or to involve others and list them in helping me get clear. And also a good source is a source that is able to allow others to tap into their sourceness. So if I'm a good source of initiative, there will be lots of other people feeling really clear about, you know, the things that I'm holding, if you like, 
and they feel really free to start up their own sort of sub-initiatives within this organizational community. Like, oh, I have this idea, this vision for this thing. And then we all say, great, so you be the source of that. And who wants to help realize that idea? And we can map it even. You know, he has this tool, Mapdio, where you can map these initiatives. And for me, it's really healthy to make clear and transparent all of those different sources, those different people exercising their creative leadership. And it doesn't take away my agency. It doesn't mean I'm in a top-down hierarchy because we're choosing it, sort of conscious, and we can name it. And that's very different compared to an inherited hierarchy. And so then the work becomes about becoming a better listener, becoming more in tune with my ability to vision things or enroll people in helping me kind of realize a vision, which can be very vulnerable and a bit scary. Um, and being really clear on needs as well. I think that's a really nice skill to develop in this new way of organizing. Like, you know, my needs in working on this thing are that I want to have a certain amount of work-life balance, for example, or I'm really looking for someone to help with this and I'm particularly interested in this part. What are your needs? Does this sound like something you want to step into? And we have regular conversations about, is this meeting our needs still or not? So that at any moment someone can step out or I might step back and then I might ask someone else to step in as the source if it meets a need for them. So it's a much more kind of dynamic flow of creative and leadership energy, really. So that's a framework or a lens that I really like. I think is quite a nice complement to moving away from top-down hierarchies, but not ending up in this trap abdication or a leadership vacuum or creative entropy, but something in between. There's so much nuance in what we're talking about. And I don't think you can see nuance until you reach a certain level of consciousness, of awareness. I think it takes investment into understanding, being very much aware on multiple levels of what information you're taking in and how you're taking it in. And then you begin to parse out those subtleties. Otherwise, we do the pendulum swing because it takes you straight into duality consciousness. Yes. It's either or and skip through the middle part on the swing by. So that's, I think, how we end up in these polarized places because we skip the part in between that says, let's meet in the middle and unpack this, understand it, probe it, sense it, feel what's going on here. And then we can work with something and create something from that bringing these two different things together. I know in my own facilitation work, there'd be these change initiatives that would come down. It was like, let's throw <laughs> out the past and jump right into it. And people are going, yeah, but my, that's my, you know, that's my source. That's where I came from. That's something I feel good about. And you want to throw it out. And there'd be so much resistance created simply by a lack of awareness on what matters to people and what has meaning for people as well. So values and meaning. But when you understand that, you could design something and facilitate something that respected where people had been as part of the journey and then forged ahead from there. I think that awareness of that duality swing is un disturbingly still present. There's plenty of opportunity to stop relying on other things for answers and start looking within ourselves mm. for these answers. And yeah, questions definitely. Too. And I think as I listen to you say all of that, I so agree. And I think I'm realizing that one key skill in being able to do that is to be comfortable with discomfort. Because I think the convenience of the either or the binary is that there's some clarity there. So I can understand how, because I also did this myself, how it's easy to end up in that pendulum swing and say, okay, no hierarchy, no leadership, because that's clear. And figuring out this kind of messy in-between middle, haven't really experienced it yet place 
is uncomfortable. And I think it does require holding a lot of acuity and uncertainty and people having different needs. An example to get specific is a lot of people say to me, you know, we tried to introduce self-management in our organization, but we really struggled when it came to performance management or career progression, because some people felt really uncomfortable with the ambiguity you know, they used to have a line manager and they knew they had this process and maybe it wasn't very empowering, but they knew where they stood. They knew how to apply for a promotion. They knew what they needed to do and so on. So we went back to the old system. Instead of doing that, it's like seeing that there is another path. You know, it's not either or, it's not A or B, but seeing, okay, so some people have this need for, what is that need exactly? Is it that they are looking for more support, mentorship or coaching or structure or clarity? What's missing? And is there something that if we spend some time listening, gathering those different needs, is there something we could develop that would meet more needs than reverting back to something or defaulting without really exploring to something that was familiar? And then you get something entirely different and it looks totally different in every organization because it only happens when you engage that unique group of human beings and their unique needs and their unique skills um, and create something that works for you. I think that comfort with discomfort Unfortunately, no, there's no shortcut. <laughs> it takes a bit of time and it takes a bit of no. sitting in that crunchy space to get to something. It's actually embracing the uncertainty and the mess. And Andrew Holm and I talked about this when we looked at what Matt Black mm. Systems did with their morphosis from more of a structured organization into something that's fractal and flat. They went through that step into the mess part because that's where the discoveries are made. That's where things pop up. That, that you don't get when you just fly by and dismiss things as being either or. It's that space where you can really understand what are the options here? What are the possibilities here that I'm overlooking because I'm just reverting back to what I feel is comfortable? So it's stepping into the mess with a spirit of discovery, of curiosity, of exploration and, and understanding. Mm. And it goes back to trust. And you mentioned transparency. To me, transparency and trust go hand in hand. If you make things visible, if you make things transparent, people know what, what's going on. The story of the Fukushima plant that didn't melt down is one I told for the Island Islands talk a couple of years ago. It's the brilliant story of when you're uncertain, completely uncertain about multiple and dynamic situation, then you simply mm. name it. And that in itself makes it more certain. Just by naming our uncertainties, we know what we're uncertain about, as opposed to having them swim around and wreak havoc in, in one's mind, it brings it down to a layer of reality that we can actually work with. That. It goes back to what I said before about leadership being about talking much more about under the surface, because in that situation, I think the tendency is, okay, this is a really uncertain, ambiguous situation. Oh, I, I need to, as a leader, convey that I know what to do or create security. And we go into this parent-child mode of I need to take care of things. I need to do this and that. But actually it's denying the reality for everyone. You know, it's the opposite of psychological safety. If I do that, you know, it's what Amy Edmondson calls framing. I think if I say, so this, this is new, we've never been in this situation before. I'm quite scared if I'm honest, we're in uncertain territory here. Therefore, I think I, we need all of our, you know, hearts and minds to engage with this. Let's talk about what we need to do. Naming it takes care of something, I think. And then something else becomes possible because you're bringing into the room what everyone's feeling anyway, but you're naming it. Making it real. 
What's the overall direction? What's your sense for where companies are going? Europe is considerably different from what we've got in North America, which is a real tenacity uh, grip on <laughs> the surface level <laughs> and reluctance to dive deeper because it'll make me look bad. Or there's still an element of status that runs through the who am I in relationship to the world and how do people see me? So there's that whole connection between stepping into what I would think is vital journeys to understand ourselves better to raise that level of consciousness and awareness and have options in front instead of just defaulting, making those decisions more intentional. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, I noticed that too. And I speak to a lot of people in North America who is doing this stuff is really precious because there aren't many people. So they cling to, okay, I'm not the only person. So it is certainly this movement. It seems to be more mature in Europe. There's lots more popping up all over the place. And I know like Dunia and Uga, for example, with their Jobs with No Boss website, they've got hundreds of companies just in Spain alone, for example, which is really incredible. But I also see organizations like there's a quite a growing movement in Japan at the moment, for example, with a group of people who've really taken to Frederick Lelou's reinventing organizations work and also Tom Nixon's source work. And it really seems to align with a lot of their cultural, like ancient wisdom and way of thinking anyway, which is really cool. And also in Latin America, there's quite a growing movement uh, of organizations that I've been talking to on the podcast and that have been you know, organizing themselves in various different communities. So that's really inspiring. Another trend I'm noticing is that in the UK, for example, uh, an increasing number of organizations in the health and social care sector who are really starting to embrace these ideas and, and read my book and other kind of space and, and ask for help in how to do it. Not because it's cool. There are a lot of minis in the tech and software engineering space. It's a natural progression on from agile. But then there's this whole group of organizations that are reimagining themselves and their governance models out of necessity because they're all scarce and it's, you know, it's a really challenging time for them. And they see that we need to do something drastic in order to survive. So they're seeing, I think, that we have to tap into the people on the front lines and this kind of centralized way of working just isn't effective. And that's really scary because I think a lot of those organizations have a legacy of sometimes fear-based culture for kind of former managers and former you know, individual contributors. It's quite a big ask to say, now you need to let go of power or now you need to step up. So the people who have to suddenly step up are really scared of, well, is this a trick? What are the consequences going to be? And the managers are scared of, is this a way to just pay me less or to fire me under some other language? You know, there's this real mistrust in many of these organizations. But there's also this real desire to do good. You know, and the systems that they've been in for so long have obstacles for them doing good and been so frustrating and demoralizing. So there's also this real untapped energy that gets released you know, over time as people start to trust, okay, this is real. I'm so that's really exciting to me is that it's not just... This is a shiny new trend, but actually this is what's needed. The other way just isn't working anymore. Because I can't help but think of the conversation mm -hmm. I had with Jose Leal a couple of episodes mm -hmm. ago on force and how all of our systems, if you really step back and look at it, are designed around forcing people to do things, which is pretty presumptuous in a whole lot of ways. Here we are in a place where we need people engaged in rethinking cities, in rethinking organizations, 
in rethinking our relationship to the natural systems that support us because we've been so separate from those. And this is a big thing for me uh, as a kid growing up as a nature photographer's daughter and you're out in the bush a fair amount and, and you just look and you go, okay, this is not good. It's not good because our lives depend on, civilization depends on this and yet we are so far away from it. So I think it's a real place where we're touching, going back and touching the realities in a more bold way, you know, in a way that simply takes a breath and then steps into those uncertain zones. That's where we learn the most. It's not in this clarity and certainty. It's in the messy parts where we just allow things to show up and present themselves. And then we can work with that. I think organizational change is about that all the time. It's what are the subtleties? If we're trying to control it, it can't breathe. There's no room for, for breathing in those environments. But if you open up the space for and set the conditions for really cool things to happen. Mm. They Reminding me of an example, a company, I spoke to the, the former CEO and he said that they read Reinventing Organizations. They got really excited. They were like, great, let's introduce this. And they went for it in a really big way. And they talked about it really publicly. And he said that looking back, this was several years ago, he realized that he was really naive about how he introduced that. And they were a company that had a strong culture, like dashboard metric. They measured everything. And he said once they started exploring and experimenting with Teal, all the numbers on the dashboard went in the wrong direction. And they freaked out. They gave it like six months. And then they went, okay, this doesn't work. And the conclusion was oh, self-management doesn't work. People need to be told what to do, da, da, da. And I remember reading about it. I was so upset because that was, you know, such a, a premature conclusion, I thought. And he realized his now in retrospect. I think oftentimes it seems to get worse before it gets better, a bit like a fever. Most organizations that I look at, it seems to take a minimum kind of two years for this shift to really start to happen in a meaningful way. Um, and a lot of people freak out when I say that because that's quite a big risk to try something out for two years and not know how or if it's going to work. That's quite a vulnerable thing to the organizations that have done that, you know, like Matt Black Systems, for example. And they did it in a very scientific engineering way, <laughs> but they tried a lot of things. It was like, okay, we tried that. That didn't work. And they were measuring it all the time. Okay, let's try something else. What if we tried this? Okay, that doesn't work. And they kept going. They didn't say, okay, this isn't possible. Let's just go back to how it was. So it does take some commitment, I think, and that's very different to the sort of dominant paradigm of organizations right now, which is like fast, fast, control things, grow, scale. You know, it takes a completely different worldview and approach to embark on this kind of journey. I absolutely agree. I recall facilitating about 20 years ago something that was very difficult, very complex and everything else. When anybody says to me, we're going to have a pilot program, it's the kiss of death. Because what they're really saying is we're going to prove this experiment doesn't work. So we can go back to doing what we've always done because it's more comfortable. So it's that dimension of trust in oneself. You know, I really can handle things that I don't think I can handle, but I can't find that out till I try it, till I step into it. And the level of compassion one has to bring to yourself and to an organizational transformation is quite high because it's those moments where, oh, okay, things are not working the way we thought they would. And our dashboard's not functioning. We're, it's the scary bits where people bail early, quite early, quite often. I think this is why these journeys are so vital, because they really demand us to say, well, this is interesting. I'm observing. I'm bailing out <laughs> mentally and emotionally. I need to look at my shifts. So it's been really a combination of some practices that keep you on pace with your emotional journey, 
which is a reflection, naming it, as you said earlier, just putting it out here, here's where I am with this. And then people can support one another. Setting up resistance to a transformation initiative is so unconsciously done and yet powerful that it needs to be equally, if not even more conscious to be aware of how to do it in a compassionate way while using your dashboard of math, not abandoning paying attention to what's going on, but paying attention to what's going on on multiple levels instead of just on one, but seeing things from yeah, a distance. I so agree. Yeah. And I love that you use that word compassionate because I think that a lot when people say to me, many time leaders who have introduced this chain, they ask me things like, what do we do? Because some people are really taking to this and really thriving and other people you know, either really disagree with it or they're slow to take it up. What do we do? Is where the compassion is really important to be compassionate that everyone grows at their own pace and people take different amounts of time. They need space. And then the second kind of C word is for me, curiosity. Like, can you be compassionate and curious? Okay. That doesn't mean these people are wrong or bad or that this change we're trying to go on is wrong or bad, but can we be compassionate and can we be curious? What is it for you that is challenging? What would you need in order to feel more, you know, take some risks here or to step in and what's missing to really be curious and ask those questions and really, really listen, I think is really key uh, instead of trying to solve it. I think that's the other pits like, okay, it's not working. Let's go away. A few of us into a darkened room somewhere and conjure up some solution for how to get it to work. That's just going to create the same, but it's going out and really asking what for you is not working. I'm sensing that something's that there's resistance. What's that about? I really want to know, please be honest. And then you'll really get people to start to save and step in and you might uncover solution or ways forward that you're not going to get if you just try and intellectually figure out some kind of solution. I'm recalling now moment where you're observing, developing the capacity to self-witness what's going on. So that's the one dimension of it. But the other one is the temptation mm -hmm. to control is high if you're used to controlling situations and trying to make yourself feel safe. The temptation to control is high. So it needs a fair measure of self-discipline to hold back and you know, not take that step to control, but just simply to hold back and allow something to show up nicely. I had a poster one though that said, self-discipline is what horses have that keeps them from betting on people. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> and as a rider, as a horse person, I thought, well, that makes sense. <laughs> so it's that place where we exercise and, and be aware of the timing. And that's a very intuitive call. So it's not one you can make without a fair measure of emotional intelligence, but certainly a fair amount of empathy. These are all layers of, of leadership development or of personal development that I think necessary to get into those discomfort zones and keep breathing and feel confident that you're going to pull through this self-efficacy yeah, part totally. of it. And I also want to say that sometimes when we talk about that, it can sound like a tall order that I have to be some kind of Zen Buddhist monk. But actually, I've seen so many examples yeah. where... It's really powerful when someone names that. And I'm thinking about an example to go back to Matt Black Systems again. Julian Wilson, one of the owners, tells this story about when there was a fire at Matt Black Systems because the building next door um, caught fire and then it spread to their office. And he um, noticed in that moment that urge to control again. You know, he had been doing really well and then suddenly an emergency happened and that kind of lure grabbed him and he wanted to be the hero and control things. But the team were like, 
it's all right, Julian, we got that. You know, we'll do this, we'll do that. You take care of the insurance and we'll do everything else. We're fine. And the fact that he can name that and be honest about, you know, if we can do that in the moment also and say, hmm, that's interesting. I'm noticing I have this really strong urge now to try and control things and I really don't want to do that. So let me pause that urge and instead, let me ask you, what do you think we should do? It's just being honest and naming that, which makes it human and safe and others yeah. feel able to do the same. I've heard so many examples of turning points where someone does that. So they don't need to be superhuman. Actually, it's sort of acknowledging that we are human and that is much more powerful. So that it's not like you have to then have this perfect state of Zen forevermore, but it's more like oh, watching yourself and trying to bring yourself back, catching yourself and trying to bring yourself back, which I guess is also like mindfulness, right? Like we talked about before. Absolutely. Uh, and mm. training a puppy comes to mind. I always appreciated Jack Cornfield's explanation of what it was like to meditate. That image of training a puppy to sit and then off the mind goes and you go, no, no. <laughs> it's that awareness of uh, the puppy just took off and, and your head's gone off in multiple directions. You've got the chance mm. to just bring it back and reset. Now, we've both been doing two podcasts for quite some time. The explorations have been around shifting perspective Interestingly enough, when I look at your guest list and my guest list, very little overlap. Head over to the Leader Morphosis podcast. You'll find some other interesting conversations there as well. So I thought that was really intriguing that we've got very different takes on it, but a similar mm. vision. One thing that I'm exploring at the moment, I'm, I'm actually going to be starting a course um, later this week uh, with Mickey Cash and, and Emma Quayle from Nonviolent global liberation. It's about capacity. And I think that this is a really interesting lens in terms of leadership, in terms of new ways of thinking about organizations. It goes against some of the things we were talking about before about endless growth and speed and all of these things. And the capacity lens is instead trying to be more honest and open about my capacity limits me as a leader, I don't ask anyone to do anything that exceeds their capacity limit. I don't ask people to overwork or to do something that's not possible. And for myself, I try to be much more honest about, you know, I try to say whole body yeses instead of people pleasing yeses or ego yeses, learning to say no sometime and learning to prioritize. I love my work and I find a lot of people who work in this way with others struggle with this org, for example, one of their main challenges is burnout because these nurses are so passionate about their work. They're really competent and the organization is incredibly effective. But when you're really committed to your work and your purpose, you can go too far. I think it's because the paradigm of the society that this kind of capitalist extractive paradigm is so strong that it's really hard, even when you don't have a boss, it's really hard sometimes to, you know, make sure you also get time to rest or have more balance or take vacation. It's like, I don't have a vacation allowance anymore. And yet I have to be really careful about booking in time for me to rest. And so that's been quite a, a kind of painful journey. And then like an inner journey. What is that? What drives that? Is that connected to my self-worth that I have to be working hard in order to be valuable or worthy? And also honoring others' capacity, talking much more about what are your capacity limits? What do you feel able to do? What's pushing you too far? How much do you want to work or not work? When do you need to take a break? And celebrating when someone takes a break, 
instead of sort of shaming each other. You know, it's really tricky, but I think really important part of this work, especially for people who are, I know it's very common also in social activists, trying to have conversations about that too. It's not sustainable if we do this in a way that's then in the gold paradigm, because we're humans, we're not machines. I think that's also a really interesting dimension of this work that I'm starting to explore more. I really appreciate that because in reading Ellen Langer's book, Mindfulness, the comment was around aging and how we see age and the whole idea that when you hit a certain thing, bing, and now you go play golf. I don't know what you do. Where if you reframe how you see aging and the aging process, then all of a sudden there's all this potential to do what it is that you really want to be doing. The creative process is fully unleashed. Burning is an element for anybody that runs off mm. of passion because that's just the deal. It's a big fuel. There's a lot of energy behind passion and purpose together. It, it does sort of setting parameters around. It is a really interesting point and it does demand um, intentional parameters to be able to say, okay, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. It is tricky for sure, because if you're into the habit of not doing it, <laughs> turning it into a habit of setting those boundaries and saying, okay, I'm going to go have fun. I always usually feel myself drift back <laughs> to, oh, that would make a really good article or that would make a good chapter in a something or other. Yeah, mm, it's yeah, fun. Me too. I really relate to that. I've <laughs> read a lot of books and tried a lot of things to untrain that. It's really hard, a lifelong journey, I think. It's hardwired. And I noticed too, as I've gotten older, you know, people look at you and go, shouldn't you be like in Mexico? You know, shouldn't you be not doing what you're doing? Basically the, the expectations, the social linear thinking around you know, this milestone, this happens at this milestone, we retire. that idea is pretty hardwired. And so fortunately there are people in, in different decades who are powering through and staying true to their passion and sense of purpose but it goes against the uh, linear grain It's of kind thought. of binary thing, isn't it? It's like, Go ahead. well, you work and then you retire <laughs> rather than well, possible. What if I work less, but I do different things or I try and live a kind uh -oh. of semi-retired life now, you know, and I'm very privileged to be able to do so. I try and do things now that I might otherwise put off for retirement or something. And I love my work. So I don't ever plan to retire. Again, it's like smashing this idea of binaries and instead like it, really getting in touch with, well, what do I want and what's possible? And, and let's ignore this inherited usual assumptions. What else could there be? Lisa, thank you so much for being on the program. Really enjoyed our conversation. I hope our listeners do too. I encourage you to head over to Leader Morphosis and take a look at the playlists that Lisa has there, uh, because you'll get some very different perspectives from what you get on the Inspirational Insights program. So next up, anything else come? that you're looking forward to? I'm trying to do some more writing. You know, I've spoken to all of these different people for the podcast and, and other things, and I have all of this knowledge and I get a lot of reward from connecting people. So I've been thinking about how I can use my writing to put that out there, give it away so that people can access it and hopefully benefit from it. So my next project is doing that. Well, I know we can collaborate on a couple of things that because we've got these incredible people in our constellation. It would be fun to see what we can create. Thanks again Thank for being on the program, me. Lisa. Self-managed companies require a higher level of leadership and doing the inner work that Lisa and I have talked about in this episode. It requires a much higher level of self-responsibility and self-accountability, 
for what you say, what you do, and for the connection and the quality of the relationships that you have with the people you work with. It's a great challenge that I think fits the time because the skill sets that go with working on with the higher levels of complexity demand more from us. It's a, a wonderful chance to dig deeper into the skills that we each have and bring them forward in a way that provides a, a fulfilling life, working life and personal life, while at the same time doing really good things for social and ecological health. Out of that, quite naturally, comes economic health. Thanks for listening. Please share, please comment, please review. Join me on other episodes and or find me on LinkedIn at D-A-W-N-A-H Jones. If you'd like to support this podcast, please use the tips jar and or subscribe on a regular basis. Thanks for joining.